A note to listeners, this story contains content about mental health. If you think that's something that might adversely affect you, now's the time to stop listening. Okay, so the second half of my freshman year of college, I got really depressed. I was having terrible thoughts, and I could hardly get out of bed. But somehow I made it through, thanks to medication, which made me throw up every morning, and also help from a counselor. A little ways into the summer, my depression lifted, but as my second year of college approached, I felt what had become familiar signs that things were about to get worse. About three days in to my sophomore year, I left school on a medical leave. I spent the next month in my girlfriend's parents' house, sleeping most of the time, trying to go on runs. The medication that I'd been taking before had stopped working, and so I started looking for something else. I found a therapist. She prescribed me a new medication called Lamotrigine. I had a horribly adverse reaction to the drug. Uh, My body was covered in a rash from head to toe and even on the inside of my mouth. I was hospitalized for three days, discharged, and then had to come back to the hospital for another three days. They said if I hadn't come back in, my skin could have started sloughing off, is the word that they used, just falling off in chunks. The moral of the story is that we haven't figured out how to deal with problems that arise in the brain. And that's what I had. I had an imbalance of neurotransmitters, which was passed on to me genetically from my mother. She had been through all the same things I had. How do I know it was a chemical imbalance? Well, my life was pretty much perfect. I liked going to school. I liked my friends. I loved my girlfriend. I have a wonderful family. But I would just start feeling tired and then more tired, and then I couldn't get out of bed, and then I'd start feeling sad, then I'd start having thoughts of suicide. And the drugs that we have to treat these problems are frankly not very good. See, the way a drug works is it spreads over your entire body. It's a special shape, so it can bind to receptors in different cells in your body basically sending them certain messages. The problem is, since the drug is all over your whole body, it's binding to receptors in parts that you don't necessarily want it to. We might know exactly where in the brain a problem lies, but the drug doesn't. That's why when I was taking my first medication, I would throw up in the mornings because the drug would go and bind to places in my stomach and make me throw up. So it's become pretty clear to me that we need a way to better target the places of interest. But this is really hard, because the brain is so complex. I study neuroscience, and one of the first things you learn, you have a 100 billion neurons. Those are the little cells that your brain uses to communicate. And each one of those is connected to 10,000 other cells. That means there's about 100 trillion connections in the human brain making it the most complicated object in the known universe. And it's sitting right on your head, weighing about four pounds. 
in the last 10 to 15 years, we've learned more about the brain than in the rest of human history combined. And we've developed lots of really amazing techniques to manipulate the brain. These times of depression were truly the darkest of my life. But I managed to get through it, and I came back for a third year of college where I learned about how neuroscientists are using light to combat the darkness that can arise within all of us. The technique is called optogenetics, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. As I was talking about earlier, even if we know exactly where in the brain a problem is arising, drugs can't target it directly. People have tried to use things like stimulating electrodes, which are basically tiny needles that they make electric, which causes the neurons in your brain to start firing. This also is pretty unspecific, and it also means that you have to cut open someone's skull and insert needles into their brain, which can be pretty dangerous. So the goal of researchers for a long time has been to turn on very specific subsets of neurons. Neurons are the cells that the brain uses to communicate through electrical and chemical signals. The goal is to be able to turn on very specific groups of neurons, both to figure out how they work in the brain, uh, like what their job is, but also so we can help people who have circuits that aren't working correctly. For instance, there might be one area of the brain that's not lighting up, not having activity when it should, or maybe there's another area that's having too much activity. How can we turn these areas up higher or tell them to quiet down? Well, it turns out we can borrow tools from nature. I love talking about this subject because it touches on so many interesting areas of the world that we never see. And if you're anything like me, this is a mind-blowing story. And as I tell it, your eyes will just keep getting bigger and bigger as it goes on. Okay, stick with me because it does get a little bit complicated. So first, you start off with algae. What does algae have to do with the brain? Well, there's a specific kind of algae that has what are called photoreceptors. And these photoreceptors respond to light. They're basically little gateways that are on the outside of cells. Cells are basically blobs uh, with lots of different things inside for making energy, for building proteins, the building blocks of cells and the rest of your body, and everything that keeps you alive and moving around. All of the things inside a cell are surrounded by a wall to hold everything in. And in algae, there's these photoreceptors. They're like little gates inserted in the wall of the cell. And they let stuff in when it's light out. And when it's dark, they stop things coming in and out of the cell. Some very creative people realized that if we could put these light-sensitive gates on the outside of neurons, the special type of cell that communicates information in the brain, we could turn them on and off selectively like a switch. This is exactly what researchers have been looking for, a way to selectively activate certain areas of the brain. So how do you get little tiny gates into neurons? The technique is called viral-mediated gene transfer. Again, some background biology. Most people usually think of a virus as little things that can get on our hands and make us sick. But when you look at these things through a very powerful microscope, you can see they're all very different. Some are little circles that have lots of weird little arms coming out, and some of them even look like alien spaceships with eight legs and a big geometric head. What makes a virus different from most organisms that we know about is that they cannot reproduce on their own. 
the way they reproduce is by going into a cell of another organism. They break through the wall we talked about earlier, and then they release their own DNA into the cell. But DNA is just a blueprint. The virus wants more of itself, so it needs all the parts to be made. The virus uses the host cell's own machinery to read the blueprint and to make all the components of the virus. Oh, you still with me? Okay, so what does this all have to do with algae and turning neurons on and off? What researchers did is they took the DNA out of a virus and put the DNA from the algae, which has the plans to make these special light-sensitive gates, inside the virus instead. The researchers can program the virus to enter very specific neurons. Then they hijack the cellular factory, but instead of making more of the virus, these cells now make these special light-sensitive gates. Now, when you flash a light on these neurons, you can turn them on and off whenever you like. So the researchers hook up special tubes that can carry laser light into, well, in this case, an animal's head. When they turn on the light, they turn on the neuron that now have these light-sensitive gates that are made from the blueprints of algae and delivered by a virus. So what can you do with this? Well, one of the scientific papers I read recently was from a group of researchers who trained rats to become alcoholic. They basically put them in a special room that had a bar for water, and they could press on it and get water, but some of the rats had a bar for alcohol. And after enough time, the rat's alcoholic consumption increases. And when you take the alcohol away, they start to exhibit symptoms of withdrawals. They start to shake, they have trouble walking, they cry out for help. We think that withdrawals are a really powerful mechanism for addiction. There are really intense negative effects that can arise when you take something away that your body has been used to having for a very long time. But what a group of researchers found in 2016 is that there was a very, very small set of neurons that were active during withdrawals. They wondered if they could turn these neurons off, could they stop the rat from going through withdrawals? A few years later, they used optogenetics to do the process I just described, but in these alcoholic rats. They repeated the same process, and they put these special light-sensitive channels on, only on the cells in this circuit that they noticed had been active during withdrawals. When they turned it on, the rats drinking would return to that of normal rats, rats who had never tried alcohol before. They also noticed that when they turned on the light, the rats stopped shaking, and they were able to walk again. They were literally able to reverse addiction with a flip of the switch. Another group of researchers has been using optogenetics to delete memories. Yeah, something straight out of a movie like Total Recall or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. What these researchers do is they find out where a memory is located in the brain, and then they put these special light-sensitive gates onto those neurons, and they can make them be quiet, which erases the memory. They also use rats. People are pretty wary of using this technique in humans still. But what they do is they train the rats that a room is very dangerous. They do this by shocking the rats every time they enter the specific room. The rats learn to be afraid every time they enter the room. But when the researchers flip the switch, the rats are no longer afraid. It's like they forgot the room was scary in the first place. Last week, a former colleague reached out to me. We used to work at a preschool together. She texted and told me that she'd been laid off of her job. She wanted to talk, but I told her 
I was busy with finals and asked if I could call her when the summer starts. She told me that I better make it an early summer because she could have chosen to go to the other side by then. Life ain't so grand. Of course, I didn't wait until summer started. I did all the things you're supposed to do when someone is talking about suicide. I reached out to her family. I sent her the suicide hotline number. And I talked to her, and she told me about how this is the reality of her life. She told me it was just the reality of her life that no medication has ever helped her, and she's worried she's doomed to be depressed forever. About one-third of people diagnosed with depression will later be diagnosed with treatment-resistant depression, meaning that they don't respond to drugs. Back in 2015, suicide was the seventh leading cause of death for males and the 14th leading cause for death for females. In addition, it was the second leading cause of death for young people aged 15 to 24, and the third leading cause of death for those aged between 10 and 14. This podcast is for those people who are still struggling with depression or another mental illness, people that are worried that there's no cure, that there's no hope. I want them to know how fast science is progressing. In the last 10 years, we've learned so much about the brain and we've developed techniques to change it in very specific ways. It's still going to be a few years until optogenetics is used in humans, but it will be. And I hope the fact that people are working on these issues provide hope to the nearly 1 billion people around the world who are struggling with some form of mental illness. Of course, messing around in the brain is probably not going to fix all of our problems. We're going to have to make changes on a societal level, on a cultural level, economic, political. There's so many things that influence mental health. But this is a good start, and it provides hope. Depression is usually recurrent, meaning that about 50% of those people who recover from a first episode of depression will have at least one or more additional episodes. And it only gets worse from there. All in all, once a first episode has occurred, On average, individuals with a history of depression will have five to nine separate depressive episodes in their lifetime. I've only had two so far, so that's three to seven more on average. I don't know if they're going to come, and if they do, how bad they'll be or how long they'll last, but I love thinking about all the people out there trying to help in their own way. And what an amazing metaphor, turning on the light to banish the darkness.